All right, we're going to get started with today's message. As you guys can see, we have communion ready for us. And I kind of announced it last week as well. Did somebody just say yes? <laughs> yeah, I think I heard that. It's been a while since we've had communion, yes. Uh, but what we'll be doing for the next three weeks, so today included, we're going to be going through a series on communion. And if you've been raised in the church for a long time, um, there's usually you get a little blurb right before you take it. Basically, like what this symbolizes, what this symbolizes, don't take it if you're not saved, and then they move on, you know? But we wanted to actually go a little bit deeper into the theology behind it, the, the symbolism behind it, and what truths of the gospel are kind of displayed through communion. And so for the next three Sundays, we're going to be talking about communion. So today, we're going to be talking about communion as remembrance. So as we partake in communion, what is it that God is calling us to remember? So from the past remembrance communion as remembrance next week we're going to be talking about communion as eucharist or thanksgiving what is god doing in our midst now so what does it illustrate about our reality right now and then the last week we'll be talking about uh communion as eschatology what is it pointing us toward and so i'm really excited for us to you know go through this series and if we do things right Hopefully, for the rest of your life, when you take communion, you'll have these things going through your mind, going through your heart as well. So today, um, we're going to be uh, going through the first part, communion, as remembrance. And we're going to be going through the passage of Matthew 26, verses 17 to 30. Can people in the back kind of read this? Yeah? Yeah, it's good? Awesome. Well, the text is going to get a little smaller. <laughs> okay, we'll see. All right, Matthew 26, verse 17, it says, On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And he replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who betrayed him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Amen. Can we take a moment just to pray? Father, we thank you for the power and the truth, the sureness of your word. We thank you, God, that we as a community have been called to remember certain things, to live in the reality of certain things. And we pray, Father, that through your spirit, through your power, through your keeping grace, 
May we live a life that is a fruit of this. Father, we pray that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds. If any of us here in this room have been raised taking communion, and yet we didn't fully understand the depth of it, if we didn't fully acknowledge the truth behind it, I pray, Father, that you would do a new work in us. You renew our hearts, renew our minds through your word. We thank you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what the Christians call today the Lord's Supper, it actually originates in a Jewish tradition, and that was the Passover feast. So it takes root in the Jewish Passover, or it's right now, modernly, it's called Pesach, Pesach, with a ch at the end. And to understand it, you actually have to go back to the 15th century BC. So I'm going to give you a little bit of context to the Jewish condition under Pharaoh that gave birth to the Passover feast. Does it make sense? So what we are going to be um, kind of practicing today is actually rooted on something that Jesus instituted around probably the year 30 AD, but that is rooted in something that happened about 15 BC. So it's almost like inception, like a dream within a dream within a dream. It's something like that today, right? We're going to be remembering, and then we're going to be remembering back to that. So we're going to start from the very beginning, 15th century BC, and I'm going to give you some context to Jewish condition under Egyptian pharaoh. So if you know the story of Joseph and his brothers and how he saved them from famine, we see that a generation later, how something that was meant to preserve them as a people. So in Israel, they were going to die because of a famine. And through Joseph, they were able to actually bypass that famine by going into Egypt. And so something that was meant to preserve them as a people later became a source of bondage. So a new pharaoh who knew nothing of Joseph, who had the pharaoh's favor, he looked around this growing and thriving minority group in Egypt and thought of ways to exploit them and to keep them from prospering. And this is what Exodus 1 says. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. And so a people that were once free and came in as basically refugees from um, a famine, they later A generation later, they became slaves under a new pharaoh. And as if that wasn't enough, he also ordered the death of all Hebrew newborn sons. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sherpa and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. So not only were the Hebrews enslaved and exploited for their labor, but also their future, their joy, and their lineage was being taken away. And so that's what was at stake at this point in history. And this is what God does in response to this. So while things seem to be getting worse and worse, God was actually working behind the scenes. And not only did the Pharaoh enslave the Israelites, but in fear that they would rise up against him, he ordered the killing of newborn sons all across the land. And it was ironically that same death mandate that led a Jewish baby being placed in a papyrus basket in the Nile River and delivered straight to the Pharaoh's house. It was precisely what was meant to destroy them that 
kind of unleashed a chain reaction and actually led a Jewish baby into the Pharaoh's house, the very same thing that was meant to destroy him. It set into motion, which would lead later, decades later, to confront what was meant to kill and destroy them. So it is here that this baby gets his new name, and his name is Moses. The name Moses means he's been drawn out of the water. So literally, he was a baby that was floating in a basket in the Nile River, and he was drawn out of the water. And this is his name, and it was sealed into his destiny, his name as one who has been brought out of the water. And he, this man, decades later, later, he would bring his people out through the water as well. This is what Exodus 3.7 says. The Lord says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So God, in his divine and sovereign plan, even working through the very plan that was meant to kill a people, he was already orchestrating a rescue plan. This is God's promise found in Exodus 6. Six, And this is what he said, therefore say to the Israelites, this is what Moses is called to say to his people. I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land that I soar with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. He pegs his name to this promise that he was giving a people. And he not only did this and he not only fulfilled this, but he also God himself gave a provision for that same salvation that he was promising. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of, the, of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year old males without defect. And that same night, They are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. On that same night, I'll pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So this is how Passover began. It was a day that was ordained by the Lord. It wasn't ordained by man. It was a measure that God took in order to save his people. And it was a day of great deliverance for Israel, but it would also be a day great of mourning and death for the people of Egypt. While some would be saved, some would perish as well. 
So today, as we are partaking in communion, and we celebrate communion as remembrance of a deliverance that not just Israel received, but also we as God's people have received, we do it with an understanding that God is a God who loves to save. And even in things that we thought were there to destroy us, to kill us, to deter us from following God's plan and God's will in our lives, God is orchestrating and God has orchestrated a rescue plan. So for centuries, this was 15 BC, for centuries after that, the Jewish people celebrated Passover. And it was the remembrance of what God did for chosen people in slavery. Going, uh, celebrating Passover together, it said, you are a people of deliverance. Partaking in this meant you have been freed from bondage. You are marked by mercy. You have been brought, you've been bought with a price. And it was celebrated in so many different ways. At the time of Jesus, one of the things that they did was actually before they partake in the, in the meal, they did foot washing and it wasn't done by the head of the household. It wasn't done by a random person. It was actually done by the lowest of the servants present there. And so when we see in the gospels, Jesus himself taking on a towel and bending down to wash his disciples feet, it wasn't a random act. You know, that would be very weird if somebody did that out of the blue, right? It was actually something that was supposed to happen and had been already practiced for many, many years. But the, the really mind boggling thing was that instead of allowing the lowest of the servants to do that, Jesus himself became that low servant and he was the one to wash the disciples feet. Also something that they did was that they dipped the bread that they shared and they broke together, they dipped it in bitter herbs. So they dipped it together and it symbolized the bitterness of slavery. Part of what this meal that they partook in together was you need to remember what you left. You can't just move on to the new. You have to remember that you are once slaves, that you and your descendants, you are once enslaved. And there was nothing romantic about that. There wasn't like, oh, I wish there were good old days. Although the Israelites did do that in the wilderness. They were like, oh, I miss those leeks. And I don't know why they would miss leeks. But you need to remember when you're partaking in this that you actually came out of slavery. And how often is it that we as as Christians often forget? Have you ever heard like testimonies of someone's salvation. And it's like, man, when I used to be away from God, man, I had so much fun. Like I was like, you know, like the big man on campus or like I used to party and and it was so much fun. And then I got saved. (laughs) You're like, that doesn't sound like Egypt. That sounds like the promised land, you know? And there's, there's something in our nature where we tend to romanticize something of the past. But God doesn't allow us to do that, especially as we partake in communion and as they partake in Passover together. They had to be reminded every year at the beginning of their calendar year, every year they have to remember as they eat something bitter that I was once in slavery. My people were once in slavery. We had no hope. We had no future. We were being used for our labor. Our children were being killed off. And if God hadn't intervened, we would not be here today. And they had to remember They had to stand from that place and then be able to partake in the celebration of deliverance. So this is something that they would do every year. They would dip their bread into bitter herbs. And I wonder if this is just my speculating. Okay, so this is not 
confirmed in any way. But I wonder if this is what Jesus meant. The person who dipped his hand in this bowl with me is the one who's going to betray me. I wonder if it was Judas who was partaking that same bitter herbs at the same time as Jesus. And so God had ordained from before time a rescue plan for humanity. And if we were to look at just the grand scheme of history, and if we were to start all the way from Genesis, as soon as mankind fell, as soon as mankind fell, God made a provision for their salvation. And it was the first, you have to think about this, right? It was the first recorded death in the entire Bible. You know what it is? It was the animal that was used to clothe them. And so it was one animal that would clothe and cover over their sins. And that was a, God, uh, that was a provision that God made for, for his people. Second, if we were to kind of fast forward into Exodus, we have one lamb for one household. And that's what we had talked about just now. You have to kill a lamb and you have to put its blood on your doorposts and one household will be covered by one lamb. Later on, when we see in the institution of the temple and the sacrifices that are raised to God, once a year, there would be a high priest and that is recorded in Leviticus. There would be one lamb that is sacrificed for one nation. So you see how the progression goes. There's one lamb for one person, one lamb for one household, then one lamb to cleanse the sin of one nation. And then we see with the fulfillment in Jesus' promises, we see one lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. This is God's plan. And this was something that God orchestrated even through circumstances that felt like we're there to destroy God's plans. For us as believers on the side of the cross, that which was once done in remembrance of God delivering Israelites out of Egypt through the blood of the lamb and the death of firstborns all around the nation will now be done in remembrance of Jesus delivering mankind out of the slavery of sin and death through the blood of the lamb of God and the death of God's own only begotten son. And that is how we partake in communion as remembrance. Isaiah 53, it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And this is the God who died on behalf of our sins. This is something that we need to remember often as believers, because especially if you've been a believer for a long time, you tend to forget that you tend to build. It's part of human nature. You build a sense of entitlement. Like I've paid my dues. I come out to church every week. Like I memorize verses in the Bible. I do my QTs religiously. And there's something in us that feels like we are owed this. We're owed grace. We're owed a new life. We're owed deliverance. But God, in his wisdom, he gave us something to celebrate quite periodically for us to be reminded that someone else's body had to be broken for mine to be redeemed. Someone else's blood had to be spilled in order for me to find new life. In Revelation 5.12, we see where this is all leading to. And we see a song being sung around the throne of God. And it says, worthy is a lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise.